If you would, open God's Word with me, please, to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21, and I'm going to read down to 39. Don't, um, don't let me deceive you in any way. I'm not even going to come close to covering all this. I'm only going to cover one verse this morning, as a matter of fact. It's not what I had planned originally, but one verse has captured my heart, my attention, and brought me great conviction this week, and I believe we need to focus on that. But to understand that one verse, we need to read the context. So hear the word of God from Mark chapter 1, verse 21, after Jesus has called his disciples, and he goes into public ministry and then to private ministry and then into even a more secluded ministry for direction as we cover this text this morning. In verse 21 it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his didaskalos, his teaching, his doctrine. For he taught them as one who had authority And not as the scribes, and as we said last week, what that meant was he taught them as a first-hand authority. He didn't speak to them as a second-hand authority. He didn't use secondary sources. He spoke directly the words of God, which were his words originally. Verse 23 says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, the demons, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And we talked about how that he came in declaring powerfully his authority here through his teaching and through his direct contact with the spirits there that he rebuked. And then in verse 29, it goes on to tell us that not only did he do this publicly, but he also exhibited his authority and his compassion privately through his personal ministry here, it says, And immediately they, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, which is just an amazing, amazing act of mercy here, just to think about. He didn't have to do this. He was the sovereign one who just cast a demon out of a man. He could have spoken and healed this woman instantaneously, yet out of his love and compassion, he reaches down and touches this woman personally. I think this is just an amazing touch that Mark adds to this account. He took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. This happened at the end of the Sabbath day, so this was when it was dark. So he'd been in the synagogue preaching all day, rebuking demons. Then he comes home and he he heals a woman at Peter's house. And then at dark, this mob of defiled and, and just destitute people come to him. And it says in verse 33, And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He didn't allow them to speak because they were trying to basically discredit his ministry by saying that he was aligned with them in some way. He silenced them. He told them to be quiet, to shut up. That's what the word was back there when he told the man in the synagogue, the demon in the synagogue, to shut up, Fimu, be quiet. What's interesting here is when you read Luke's account of this same verse 34, It does state very clearly that Jesus healed all of those people personally. He literally, it says in Luke's account, touched every one of these people physically to heal them and to deal with the demons that were in them. Which is just astounding to to see because here we have Jesus showing His full authority as sovereign over demons, yet showing His full compassion and mercy as a human touching and caring for these defiled and degraded people, these people who 
were disgusting, frankly. Sickening, if you think about it. We talked about it with his incarnate eyes. He saw it. He saw the effects of this fallen world on man through this mob that gathered around him. And he sought them out and he cared for them personally. It doesn't say he saved any of those people at that time. It just simply says that he showed great mercy. We could call this common grace toward his creatures. And then, then the, ver- the verse that strikes me this morning is the next verse, verse 35. I'm going to read this all the way down to 39 without stopping, but I want you to pay attention to this divine pause in verse 35. Remember, he's, he's been ministering after sundown to all these diseased and demonized people. And then it says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It's very interesting to me when I read this section of Scripture, 35 to 38 especially, to to look at this from our cultural perspective and from our pragmatic perspective in our Christian culture. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do what most pastors would do here today. There's a large crowd. Let's set up the ministry here. Let's stay here and let's deal with social issues. Let's be compassionate. Jesus knew knew that there was something that was more preeminent, more important than just common grace. It was saving grace that was declared through the Word. His main ministry was to go into the world and preach God's gospel, live God's gospel, become God's gospel. And I think that verse 35 is a transition point. I think that Jesus, in his humanity, wanted to stay with those diseased people and lovingly care for them. I am am completely confident in that. He loved those people. He cared for those people, or he would not have went out all night, basically, and touched those people. And I am sure, in his humanity, it looked like this would be a good ministry. Yet, what's he do in verse 35? He makes prayer... A priority. He seeks the Father's will and the Father's strength to do His ministry. That's, that's the passage that's captivated me this week. It's convicted me to look at this one verse. It's humbled me in my ministry. It's humbled me because in this I see Jesus' humility. He came to serve not to be served. He submitted himself willingly to the Father's will to do what the Father desired and had planned before the foundation of the world. And he submitted to his Father for strength. He went to him for strength in his ministry, for direction. And I was thinking about this and thinking how many times pastors and Christians in general don't do this. And we say we do this. And we try to do this, yet we fail at this. Yet Jesus made this the priority at the very beginning of his ministry to submit himself to God's direction, God the Father's direction. In verse 35, we see how important it was to Jesus to seek out time with God the Father through sweet communion and for, I believe, direction in his earthly ministry. Think about this. When you pray, a lot of times we pray laundry lists, things that we need, things that we want. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He prayed whatever the Father wanted that that would be done in his life. He prayed biblically. We need to pray biblically. I'm not saying we can't bring our request to God. We can. We're commanded to do so. But do you ever look at prayer as simply sweet communion with your Father? 
getting apart from the world, focusing on the greatness of your God, the direction you need from His Word? Do you do that? Do we do that as we ought and we don't? I confess I don't do it nearly enough. I think we strive at it and we should continue. But I think that Jesus' example here should teach us something about the importance of that. We need to learn from Jesus this morning. Jesus didn't come to God the Father in prayers of repentance like we do. He never came confessing sin. He was always in the Father's will, yet He humbled Himself. Even as the Sovereign, God the Son, God incarnate, God who left heaven's glory, God the Son who came into the earth as a babe to fulfill all righteousness for sinners that could never satisfy God's requirements. Jesus comes and does that. Jesus is always in the Father's favor. He's even blessed by God at His baptism. He's even blessed by God at His transfiguration. He says, this is my Son, listen to Him. Yet Jesus submits to the same means of grace that we need, which is communion with the Father. He comes and submits to Him. He comes to God not in repentance. He comes to God in reliance, in confidence, that God will strengthen His ministry and direct His paths. He comes knowing that even though His flesh humanly speaking, loves those people in Capernaum. God has a better plan that involves going throughout all the synagogues in Galilee and preaching God's message. And listen, the reason for that is the common grace, the healing touch, it's temporary. The message of God's saving grace, that brings eternal healing. Not just to the body, but to the soul. And promises... In the future, that the body will be restored. It will be made whole one day. You do know, we do know, in heaven, in the glorified state, on the new earth, we will have glorified bodies. Our bodies will be reconstituted without sin. But that only comes through the saving message that Jesus proclaimed. Not just through socially caring for the ills of society. Now, Jesus is always perfectly balanced in his ministry. He does tell us to take care of orphans and widows. But it is absolutely useless to do so without proclaiming the gospel. If you love people physically without giving them the object of truth about their soul's condition and God's sovereign grace and mercy and the work of Jesus Christ, you're not loving them at all. You can do both, though. You can do both. Jesus did both. And he did so through submitting himself first and foremost to prayer. He sought out a time, if you read this text correctly, he sought out a time and he sought out a special place. I think that's important for us. He did this, I believe, because he was fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. The theo- I can't even think of the word right now. The anthropos, the God-man. He sought out this special time and place so that he would not be distracted because of his human concerns, his physical weaknesses. He sought out a time that he would be restored physically because he was worn out, frankly, when you think about it. Have you ever served, cared for people all day long, and then found yourself completely physically and mentally exhausted? So did Jesus. Jesus needed a special time and place to focus his mind on God's will. See, Jesus' life and our lives should be marked by what we call biblically unceasing prayer, right? That's true. The Bible teaches that very clearly. We should have a God consciousness all the time. We should be communing with God constantly, thanking him for the breath that we have in our lungs, for the sunshine, for the life all around us, for our ministry, for our, our service to others our church, our family. And Jesus did that also. Jesus was constantly in prayer in communion with his Father because he had nothing to keep him from that. He has no sin. He's sinless. He's always doing that. Yet what I find very, very interesting and astounding here is that even though unceasing prayer was part of Jesus' life, so was secluded prayer, special prayer. He secluded himself 
for a reason. So that he would not be distracted. So that he could focus his mind. Because his body and his mind were weary. And I I believe that none of us here are any stronger than the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we? We're no stronger than Jesus. We are much more distracted than Jesus. Because we do have sin and selfishness pulling at us all the time. You start to pray, and what happens? You begin to pray, and then all of a sudden, the laundry list comes into your mind of things you need to ask for. And then all of a sudden, the noise in the background comes into your mind. And then all of a sudden, you don't even know what you're saying anymore. And you're so distracted, you're drifting away from prayer, or you're falling asleep. Is that anybody else's testimony besides mine? Okay, I've just confessed my sin to you. I think, therefore, we need to learn here from Jesus. And we need to learn from the apostles, right? Most of us are probably much more like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane than we are like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can't you watch an hour with me? I'm going to die, Peter. Can't you stay awake? The hour has come. And what's Peter do? Yes, yes, yes. I'll pray. And he's out. In the, in the immediate vicinity of Jesus, Peter can't even do this on his own. Yet, it doesn't mean we don't need to. We need to learn here from Jesus that this is something that's essential. If we're going to be directed prayerfully as a church, if we're going to go into the world with our ministry, we need to look at how Jesus went into the world with his ministry. And that was by first praying. Setting aside time and setting himself aside to care for others and for God's glory. We need to be directed prayerfully like Jesus to fulfill our ministry. He was, interestingly enough, he had something going on that we don't have in one sense. He was directed prayerfully and directly by God the Father's voice. He had perfect communion with him. He heard God speak. And not only that, he knew God's revealed word completely he had it hidden in his heart and he was directed prayerfully by god the father and that doesn't mean even though we can't do that we don't have that ability to hear god speak verbally it doesn't mean we don't need god's direction because we do and it doesn't mean god still doesn't speak to us because he does just not in the same manner than he did with jesus and like i said last week we don't hear god's audible, verbal voice today directing us. But what we have is we have God's more sure word revealed to us in Scripture that will guide our prayers, that will guide our ministry. And so we need to prayerfully be submitted as Christians to God's word where we find God's will for our ministry you know, people think that the idea of an audible voice is some kind of, like, you know, mystical intimacy they have with God that, you know, everybody needs to experience. The problem with that is they don't know how to gauge whether that voice is from God or not, unless they go to Scripture. And if you go to Scripture, why do you need an audible voice anyway? Scripture is the final authority. God speaks clearly, and there is nothing more miraculous than the fact that God can open our ears and eyes to see His glory and directions in His Word. The unbelieving man can't see this. It's spiritually discerned. We can go here, though, and we can find direction for our prayers. We can find direction for our ministry in the world by submitting ourselves to His Word that's what directs and empowers us. That's what directed and empowered Jesus in Mark 1.35. But what we need to understand is our lives and our personal ministries, and, I, and when I say lives and ministries, I'm really not trying to distinguish two different things. Your life is your ministry. Okay? So our ministries, and you're all ministers, you're all witnesses, you're all ambassadors if you're believers. Your lives, my life, as a minister, needs to be directed prayerfully and biblically this morning by Jesus. So the very first point and the only point of the sermon this morning is found in Mark one thirty-five. There we see that Jesus will teach us that, number one, the gospel of God and our ministry should be directed prayerfully. It's a pretty simple point. 
but I think that it's one that we sometimes overlook. We get involved, we get energized, we see a need, and we just pursue it, and we don't necessarily stop and contemplate biblically how God would direct us to continue in it. And we need to do that because all effectual God-honoring ministry begins with prayer. Because prayer is simply this. It's submitting our will to God's will. It's submitting that we can't change people. Only God can change people. And we ask for Him to use us in that ministry. Effectual God-honoring ministry begins with prayers of intercession. You know, you're always praying what the Arminians really hate to say. You're praying that God will enforce His will upon others. Aren't you? When you're praying for the lost, are you not praying that God would impose His good and gracious and sovereign, merciful will upon sinners who would not come on their own, yet God, please intervene because, God, I can't save them. I love those people. I see those destitute people, those sick people, those demonized people, and I want to save them, but I can't. So I submit to you, they need a Savior. Open their eyes. I think that's what Jesus is praying. I know he prays that. And God honors that kind of prayer because in that prayer, we're seeking God to do the work. We're seeking God's glory in the work. And we're acknowledging that we need his work in our lives. God honoring ministry begins with that kind of prayer. And that kind of prayer will move us to compassion. It'll cultivate that in our hearts. We go to God in prayer biblically, and we see how Jesus prayed. We see that Jesus rises early here in Mark 1.35. In Mark 1.35, let me read it again. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark. Now, some commentators believe this could have been anywhere from about 2 to 5 a.m., 2 to 5 a.m. Most believe that it's going to be closer to the 2 o'clock mark. Now, if you think about how it's described here in this context, how this mob of people came down to Jesus after the sun went down on the Sabbath, and he goes out and physically touches a mob, I'm going to just suppose that's more than a 30-minute activity for him. I'm going to suppose he spent about half the night hugging people. Kissing people, touching people, healing people, showing compassion to people. And then it says his priority isn't Jesus' own rest. It shows us something about his humility and his submission to God's direction. Jesus says, I came out for a purpose. I came out of obscurity into public life, into public ministry, so that I could declare the gospel of God with power and with authority. And so he says, early in the morning, I would guess that Jesus probably slept very, very little that night, if at all. He rises up while it's still dark, and he departs, and it says he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Prayer becomes his priority. He is directed prayerfully in his ministry here. And again, I'm just I'm having to think through this from the fact that he's the, the, the anthropos, the God-man. Anthropos meaning man. Theo meaning God. The God-man. He was fully God, fully man. And I know in his humanness, I know in his humanness that he, he knew that he was in need of strength. He needed strength. Comforting. He needed communion with his father. He had poured out of his flesh everything he had, ministering in the synagogue, Peter's home, and with these mobs of people. And so then he submits to not even resting, but to going out and praying because he knows that God's direction is what he needs most. And we should learn from that. You and I have a very short ministry. As far as I can tell, your ministry time that's left is only the next two seconds. You may not be here after that. One of the quotes I have on the pulpit here is, I preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Your ministry could be very short. What is the priority in your ministry? 
Is it to exalt God and commune with Him so that you could reach others with His message powerfully? That was Jesus' desire here. First thing we see is that there in verse 35 is Jesus teaches us about His high view of prayer. That's the main lesson, I think, in this passage. Prayer was His priority, and prayer was sweet to Him. He desired this. He got up and He went out. In Christ's prayer here, you can see that there's evidence of, number one, dedication. When he gets up early. In other words, he was dedicated to his ministry. The ministry that God the Father had given him. And number two, you can see there's not only dedication, there is humble submission. He is seeking the Father's direction. He is seeking communion with the Father. He is seeking Him as a human would seek Him. You know what he's doing? He's, he's seeking him as we ought to seek him. See, what Jesus is showing us in verse 35 is, this is the way we should live, frankly, all the time as Christians, in complete reliance on God's direction, in complete communion. Yet you and I fail to do this, and aren't you glad that Jesus didn't fail to do it for us? He loved God with all of his heart and his strength and his mind, everything he had. And this is an expression of that. So I think this text should just really cause us, first of all, to just admire Jesus. I mean, do you, do, do you stop and do that when you read through the gospel accounts? We need to do that. Do you adore Jesus when you see what he's doing here? Just think about it. His humanity was exhausted, and yet he set aside his own needs for the sake of others. It sounds a lot like what he will do at the cross, doesn't it? At the cross, his humanity was wasted, devoured, consumed by God's wrath against our sins. Yet he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for God's glory and for our good, for the sake of others. He does that here in his prayer life. He set aside his needs, his physical needs, for the sake of the Father's will and the good of others. We can see that. I think, again, this text should not only cause us to admire Jesus, it should humble us, right? Do we share Jesus' desire to pray like this? Do we set aside, do you and I set aside honestly, honestly, set aside time daily for communion, not just prayer requests? Do you set aside time to commune with God, read through a text of Scripture, and rejoice over what God has shown you here, what He's teaching you here, what He's convicting you of here? Do you you read through the Psalms and adore His attributes? Do you exalt Him? Do you praise Him? Do you thank Him before you request things of Him? We don't do it like we ought, and I know that. This is... This is hard to hear. Because if we're not communing with Him as we ought, we're probably not coming to Him for the directions we need either. Most generally, if we get to that in prayer, it's because we've hurried through because there's an immediate need and we think that we just need to throw it out to God real quick instead of rejoicing over the fact of what He's already shown us and how He can direct us biblically. We rush into ministry. And I know there's some immediate needs sometimes in ministry. Nate and I get phone calls. Things happen that we need to make a decision quickly about. But if Nate and I don't pray about it, we have failed you in that ministry. Because you know what? We may go in a direction that may not really be God-exalting or good for you either because of our humanity, because of pride, because of our failures. So we need to have ourselves washed in His Word and directed by His will before we direct others. But do you do that? Do you set aside? Do you want to do that? And I think that you do. I think that if when I ask you, do you want to set aside time? Do you want to be directed by God in prayer? The answer is going to be always yes. But you're going to fall short. And that's just the truth. Because of your sinfulness and your selfishness and my selfishness keeps me from doing this as I ought. But here's the good news, okay? Here's the good news for us. When we fail to pray like we ought to pray, when we fail in prayer to submit our lives to God in His direction and set our lives apart for His purposes, we don't have to be afraid. 
Because Jesus has already prayed that our ministry would not fail. He has already interceded for us that we would persevere in our ministries. Look with me at John 17. John 17, 17. When we fail to pray as we ought, we can take confidence in what Christ has prayed for in this text. We can take confidence in this because this is our hope. This is my hope in ministry. I have no ability apart from God's sovereign grace and the Holy Spirit's power to minister to you, to pray for you as I ought, to be dedicated to this ministry apart from what Jesus prayed for in this text. This is a miraculous text. John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify, sanctify them in the truth. That means set them apart, make them holy, set apart in the truth. And then he defines for us what the truth is. It's not what man thinks. It's not what popular philosophies say. He says, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, what you understand, need to understand here in John 17 is Jesus is praying as your high priest. He is praying for us that our ministries would not fail, that they would point to God's glory and his work in us. He says, as you sent me into the world, verse 18, so... I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, that's an amazing text. Jesus said, I have set apart myself, Mark 1.35. I have done what they can't do. I have done it perfectly for them. I have consecrated myself so that, so that, they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus suffered many things so that we could rejoice in His suffering. He set Himself apart so that we could be set apart to God for eternity. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, that means the twelve, the the apostles, but also for those, that's the church, that's you if you're a believer, those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Jesus is praying that those that he has called and set apart would be set apart in the truth and that he himself would set his life apart to guarantee that they would be evidently his children in the world so that the world would see the love of the Father and the love he has for the Son and those that the Son gives to him through his own blood. Jesus was praying that for us because he knew that we could not pray as we ought He knew that we would not constantly set ourselves apart to prayer as we ought, so He does it for us here. Jesus prayerfully counted on God to direct us and strengthen us in our ministries. That's what He's interceding here and doing in this prayer in John 17. He's counting on God to direct and strengthen His children. And we need to be praying for that also when we pray. We want God to direct us through His Word and strengthen us for our ministry. Jesus taught and believed that prayer is essential to a gospel-driven ministry. Jesus illustrates it for us. In Mark 14, go to Mark 14 with me. In Mark 14, Jesus illustrates the importance of prayer. He prayerfully prepared for his greatest ministry of all. He sought time alone to focus on God's will so that he would satisfy God's purposes in his life and ministry. And he is telling us something about the priority here of ministry when he does this. He's showing us that we need to be submitted to his direction. We find God's direction in his word. Mark 14, 32. Again, this is Jesus prayerfully preparing for his greatest ministry. This is just, again, an an astounding testimony to his humanity and his deity. He is praying about something that only God can accomplish through him, yet his flesh had to submit to willfully. Verse 32 says, And 
they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here for a while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, as God, he was never distressed. It's speaking of his humanity here. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, notice, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus' flesh wasn't weak. It was troubled. What was about to take place was the cup of God's wrath was going to be poured out on Jesus in our place. The sinless one was going to become sin for us. He was going to be cursed by the Father in our place on the cross. Receive God's just judgment against us in His flesh. He saw, I believe, in His heart, His soul, the mighty work that He was about to accomplish and the toll that it would take upon His flesh. Yet, nevertheless, He was submitted to the Father's will to save a people for His namesake. His flesh was not weak, but it was committed to prayer because he needed to be reminded of the Father's will. Now, I want to teach you something about praying the Father's will in a moment. And again, it's not a mystical, weird thing. You have to wait for some kind of voice to, to hit you out of the blue or lay out something in the street and it turns blue overnight, and then you know God wants you to do something. None of that junk. We pray in accordance with God's will when we pray in accordance with His Word. But we need to be submitted to what the Word says. And I think that does require prayer. If we desire a gospel-driven ministry like Jesus, and if we desire to incarnate the gospel and His compassion, we have to devote ourselves to prayer like Jesus. When Jesus prays, His prayers are first and foremost for communion with His Father. He seeks that above all things. Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, he comes to God like that. He comes first and foremost in communion. Then he comes for direction. Not my will, but your will. And then he comes for intercession. Not my will, your will, for the good of your people. I submit myself to you. That's what Jesus does, and that's what we need to learn from Jesus this morning when we pray for others. Come in communion with God. Rejoice over your communion with God through Jesus. Come asking for his direction now that you're his child. Submit to his word. Then intercede for others. In other words, take what you learn after you've been taught from his word and submitted to him in prayer and humility and carry it out in the world with compassion, with conviction, and with intercession. I want to show you some examples of how Jesus did that. Look with me in Luke. These will all be in Luke. Luke 6. If you have an outline, they're laid out there for you. Luke 6. Here what we see is we see Jesus praying, if you'll notice, before he makes a decision. Now he's sovereign. He is God the Son, the incarnate Son of God. Yet he submits to the Father's will because this is what he is called to do in his servant ministry. Here he is praying in 6.12. In these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, special sent messengers. So he is praying before he is choosing his disciples, his apostles. He is praying, in other words, for wisdom from above, 
to know who to pick to be involved in his ministry. Now, we need to learn something from that. We need to pray like this. We need to pray for wisdom from above that God would direct us to where we ought to serve. We should be praying, God, do you want me to serve as a member of Sovereign Grace Bible Church? Should I submit to membership? Do I agree with their confession of faith? Do I agree with their philosophy of ministry? Do I need to do this because this is how you work in the world? Is through your church, through submission, through direction, through commitment in membership. Lord, I need wisdom from above to direct me in where I need to serve in that role. Do I need to serve as a Sunday school teacher? Do I need to serve as a children's class helper? Do I need to serve as a deacon? Do I need to serve as a prayer warrior? Do I need to serve as a giver? Do I need to serve as an encourager? You need to be asking these things. Asking for God's wisdom before you make these choices. These are spiritual choices. And by the way, even though you may not think it, you can be an encourager. You can pray to be an encourager. You can serve the church as an encourager here on Sunday mornings, as a greeter, As someone who talks to people, encourages them, and talks to them scripturally about what God's doing in your life so that you can encourage them in their life. You can encourage them on Facebook, on Twitter, with text messages, with phone calls. If you're focused on bringing them God's word. Are you submitting to his wisdom? Are you using your time on Facebook wisely for his glory? I mean, what an amazing avenue of ministry that is for us today. You can can address hundreds of people, thousands of people with one little message and point people to Jesus. You can point them to the local church as well. But you need to be submitting to God your will here. Lord, help me to use my, my life, my ministry in your service. Give me direction. How can I do that? And for a direction, let me suggest this. Turn with me to Romans 12. This is where you find your direction from the Word. If you want to be an encourager, here's how you do it. Romans 12, you read this text. This will guide your prayer life. You study this text. Romans 4, or Romans 12, 4, it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And on and on the text will take you. See, it's, it's great to say, Lord, I submit myself to your wisdom to where I should serve. But if you don't inform your mind of what God's already revealed about where you can serve, you may neglect these very simple truths right before your eyes. So you go to Scripture and you submit your heart to God's direction. Now, Jesus also, in Luke 22, shows us something about prayer. Here he's praying before he goes to the cross. Luke 22, verse 40. Luke twenty-two forty 40 through 42. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He is praying for the power to sacrifice himself for God's glory and for the good of others. We need to pray like this. We need to pray for the power from God to sacrifice our comfort, our time, our finances, our lives to declare God's love to others. We need to learn from Jesus in this text. And that prayer, though, has to be, again, directed by Scripture. How do we do this? What does this kind of love look like? How is it explained to us in Scripture? How can I actually emulate Christ's attitude here? Well, Philippians 2 tells us how. Philippians 2, verse 1. Philippians 2, 1, with 2, 3. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All right, that verse all by itself is pretty powerful, but when you see what's connected to it and the reason behind it and how you are to do it, then you see the gospel that drives it. Let each of you look not only to your own interest or his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would give us the power and direction, according to the Scripture, to set our minds on the things that above, the things that would honor God by setting aside our desires for the sake of others. Consider other people as more important than yourself and reflect Jesus to them. Point them to Christ, who set aside His glory and added to His deity humanity and became a servant and died on a cross to receive our judgment so that He could impute to us His righteousness, His right life, and grant us communion with the Father. Jesus prayed again, Notably, on the cross. There Jesus is praying in Luke 23. He's praying to fulfill God's sovereign will for sending him into the world. Jesus came into the world for a purpose, to give his life a ransom for many. For all those who would believe and repent of their sins and trust in him, turn away from their self-righteousness, turn away from their sin and debauchery and offenses to God's law, and turn in faith to Jesus, who satisfied all of God's requirements, gave his life as a ransom to pay their penalty, and then ascended into glory to intercede for them. They must believe that. That's what he's praying for God to fulfill here on the cross. 2334, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Even in the midst of his greatest act of forgiveness is His very grace that's being exhibited on the cross. Unbelievers are still living in their filth at His feet because they will not repent of their sins apart from God sovereignly opening their eyes by His grace. Nevertheless, Jesus had compassion on the men at the foot of the cross. He had compassion on you and I. We were at the foot of the cross crying, crucify Him as well. We need to pray for that kind of compassion. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who God's people are. We know that every man apart from God's saving grace is lost in their sins and bound to hell. The only hope they have is Jesus. And you are the messenger of that message of grace. Carry it forth with compassion. Intercede for your enemies like Jesus did here. Jesus' prayer was full of that kind of compassion. We need to be full of that kind of compassion. When we are involved in ministry, when we are reaching out to the lost, we need to be directed at the beginning of our ministry and at the end of our ministry like Jesus, directed by God's will and God's compassion. We won't have that kind of direction unless we submit our hearts to His will in prayer. Submit to His direction. Though we don't understand where this is going to take us, we submit that wherever He calls us to go, according to His Word, as He's revealed, we will go and He will be glorified in the going. We go as we are commissioned and directed by His Word, trusting in doing that, that God will be glorified in our obedience as we reflect Christ's obedience. The Apostle Paul illustrates that. Let me quickly go there. Romans 1. The Apostle Paul illustrates that kind of submission, that kind of willing submission in prayer to God's direction, no matter where it would take him. And in Romans 1, 8 through 15, you can see where it took him. It says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's saying here in Romans that he has been begging God to let him come there so he could impart to them a spiritual gift, the knowledge of the gospel in detail. He's been begging for God to give him that opportunity. He's been seeking it. He's been directed prayerfully to ask for this, and then he grants it to Paul. Paul was directed prayerfully to go to Rome, but he went not in the way in which you would think he would go. He goes in chains. He goes in chains, and he is happy to go in chains as a prisoner of Christ Jesus to Rome to preach the gospel because he submitted his heart to God's priority. God's priority was proclaim the gospel no matter what it takes. Do it for God's glory and do it for the good of others. And in Philippians 1, turn there quickly. This is a sermon I intended to do in about 30 minutes, and it's already an hour. So just so you know. I, I really had good intentions, and I prayed about them. God's directing this, all right? Philippians. Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 3. Look at, look at the result. Look at the result of prayerful direction here. How he submitted to God's will, and God's will was that you go as a prisoner to Rome. And here he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this. I thank my God, in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer. Now, he's actually in Rome when he's writing this as a prisoner. He's under house arrest. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul was directed prayerfully to go to Rome as a prisoner so that these men would be emboldened in the gospel and that people in Caesar's household would be saved, even guards. 4.22 says that it was very, very clear that many in his household came to faith in Christ because it says, In 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. They heard because Paul was submitted to God in prayer. And he was submitted to do what God had revealed that he was called to do, which was preach the gospel. He submitted his life and his ministry to God's direction prayerfully, and that's what we need to do. He bowed his heart low to Jesus' lordship over his life. He humbled his pride and said, I could not do this ministry without you. He rejoiced in his soul that God was able to work through his imprisonment. He knew that God was in control. Jesus knew that very well when he prayed in Mark 135. He knew that God had a purpose in sending him from Capernaum into these villages, these nowhere towns around Galilee to preach the gospel. He continued doing what he was called to do, and we are now recipients of his work and his ministry. Paul did the same, yet Paul died as a prisoner of Christ in Rome, yet the gospel lived on because of his prayerful submission to God. He followed God completely. He submitted to God's direction. We need to do that as a church as well. 
That was Paul's encouragement to the church at Ephesus. We'll end with this text, but that's not how we're going to end, but I'm going to end with this text. Look what it says in Ephesians 3. My goal this morning in preaching this sermon is to move you to prayer, to cause us to be directed prayerfully about our ministry at Sovereign Grace. This preaching is not an exercise of entertainment, okay? This is it's not all that entertaining anyway when I do it. But when, when we're up here and we're preaching to you, God's addressing you as a church. God is calling for a response to this message. And if you sit here and listen to this and you don't respond to this, you are in disobedience to God's direction. We need to respond to what Ephesians is saying here. Ephesians three fourteen. Go ahead and go down to 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Basically, that the reason was that he was able to preach the gospel in a place where it could have been very difficult to preach. He went in and preached boldly, even though he was stoned for it, even though he was beaten for it, even though he was imprisoned for it. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul says, I submit prayerfully to God so that I could tell you about his riches in Christ and that you could be transformed as a church. Verse 17 says, I do that so that Christ may dwell. That means to set up residence in your hearts through faith, that faith comes from Scripture, doctrine, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled or controlled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we, that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory where? Where is the glory to be residing? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I preach, we teach, Paul taught and he preached constantly about the love of Christ from Scripture to direct us in our ministry, to exalt God in the world so that we would be filled with the full knowledge of how great He is. And that that knowledge would overflow with confidence in our lives to those around us. And he says, I love verse 20, I'm asking something that I know is not even possible for me to do humanly through all of my preaching. It is the power of God that must do this through His Word, through His people. God wants to be exalted in the church. And for Him to be exalted here, we need to be directed to Him in prayer. We need to be taken to Him in prayer. We need to take our requests to Him in prayer. We need to submit our lives to Him in prayer. And we need to submit our lives to His Word to do that properly. That's the way Jesus did His ministry. We can follow that example in Jesus' ministry. He was directed prayerfully to the cross for God's will and for our good. We can be directed to that same cross prayerfully for God's glory and for the good of others as well when we submit to His Word as a church. We submit to His direction. We humble ourselves and say, our lives are not preeminent. Jesus is. It's the most important thing that we have been given is the glorious gospel of God that reveals Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His soon coming. That's our message. We need to be submitted to that. Let me just say this. If you haven't been submitted to that message, if that message is new this morning, if that message is now becoming clear to you, this is what God has done for sinners like you and I he has sent forth His Son, God the Son in human flesh, to complete all righteousness, live a life that would honor God completely because we can't. If you believe that, and you believe that same Jesus went to a cross as a sinless man, and God poured out on Him all the wrath that was due us, 
And because he wasn't just a mere man, but he was also fully God, he could absorb that eternal wrath because he himself was eternal. And he forever will intercede for his children now because of the work he did on that cross. He died. He rose because death couldn't hold him. It had no power over him. He was sinless. And all who believe in him and turn away from the things that we loved in our sinful condition, see them from the way God sees them, his perspective. All those who do that can be assured that we can come to him now in prayer and he will hear us because we have communion with him through his son. You need to do that this morning if you haven't done that. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent of those sins. And you need to turn to Jesus alone for your salvation. What I want to do this morning is I want us to rejoice in that. I know it's time to stop. (laughs) But I, I, I don't want to stop with just this word of exhortation this morning. I think we need to stop and do something corporately as a church this morning. I don't care about time. I was convicted and directed last night as I prepared through this and went through this text that we as a church this morning in particular need to corporately pray together that God would be glorified, praised, and adored through this church. That he would direct our lives and our ministry in this world. Jesus in the text in Mark 1, 35-39, talks about how that he was given this directive to go on to other cities and proclaim the gospel of God. We have been given that commission to go into this world. And I think we corporately, this morning, all who are here that are believers, that you need to pray this morning that we would, as a church, glorify God, praise God, adore God, as we go in the name of God into this world, into Ada, into our families, into our homes. I think it's appropriate that we do that as a church family this morning. Our ministry relies on God's spirit and God's power, God's direction. And we need to confess that this morning corporately. So I want to do that with you. I want you to bow your heads with me and I want us to pray. And I realize the kids are over here and making noise and all this stuff happens and it can distract you. And this isn't a secluded place like Jesus had. But this is a special time that we have as a church body, as a church family. And you can put those noises out of your head for just a moment, I think, and focus your attention on what God has directed us to do in His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to You because we can, since Jesus again came into this world for us. Jesus, we love You. We want to adore You. We want to magnify your work and your grace. And Holy Spirit, we need your power to do that. I pray that you would correct us, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would convict us, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would direct us to your word as a church. God, I ask in doing that, that you would direct our ministry. We humbly submit to you that we cannot accomplish the work you've called us into apart from your word and your spirit. We are incapable of doing the work of the ministry apart from that miracle of grace that you have given us through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus You've opened our eyes to see our directives in Scripture. You've opened our eyes to see that the power comes from above and not from within us. We need your help. We want your help. We desire your direction. We desire that you would be magnified, made much of through this church. And for that to happen, I need to pray and we need to pray that you would forgive us of our sins of neglect, our sins that keep us from walking in sweet communion with you. We confess we need your cleansing. We confess we need your grace and power to equip us to walk in holiness. You've called us to be set apart. Jesus, you prayed that we would be set apart in the truth. The truth reveals our condition. The truth reveals your grace and your mercy. And we pray that that would move us in our ministry away from sin and toward holiness. We pray as we do that, that we could have evidence of that grace in our life that's displayed through active repentance and that we would not be praised in that, but that we would praise you and point people to your work of repentance in us. Repentance and faith are both gifts that you grant 
So we pray that as we do what you have granted, what you have given to us to do, we pray that we would point people to you. We pray that in doing that, you would be adored. God, this is not playtime. This prayer, this time, this community of prayer that we're bringing together to you, this corporate prayer, is it's allowing us to enter into the heavenlies. We are at your throne. We, we are in union with you. We are speaking to you directly with, with the voices of millions and billions of people, yet you hear our cry personally. You love your church. Jesus, you are so clear in Ephesians 5 how much you love your church. It doesn't say you love the world this much. It says you love the church so much that you laid down your life for her. In John 6, you make it clear to us, Jesus, that your sheep will hear your voice and they will come to you. You will draw them to yourself, God. We thank you for that miracle. None of us deserve it. We all deserve your wrath and your judgment, yet in your mercy to testify to your greatness and your grace, you saved us. I want that truth to penetrate my heart every day, so much so that I will set aside time to adoring you. And I pray, God, when I fail to do what I ought to do, that I will look to Jesus' work who did it for me perfectly in Mark 135. He sought your direction and he fulfilled your commands so that I could have this relationship with you today. I pray, Lord, that your word will penetrate our hearts. And as it does so, I pray that we would magnify your name in the world as a church. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.